and welcome to this week's episode of the Morbidly Deceased podcast. I am your host, JT McCallum, and I am joined today uh, by Ray Bradbury's biographer and fellow KISS fanatic, Mr. Sam Weller. So thank you very much, Sam, for being a part of the podcast today. Gosh, what like a, a decidedly huge honor to be on this podcast. With you. <laughs> like, I haven't been this, ex- I've done it, you know, hundreds of interviews over the years. I legitimately have not been this excited for an interview uh, in, in, in as long as I can remember. And there's good reason for it. And <laughs> I think people will hear it as the conversation proceeds. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, with every guest that we have on, uh, we always like to ask the first uh, 13 questions. Just the show is generally a horror show. And I'm assuming that you are somewhat of a horror fan. Oh, my man, I've, I'm a two-time Bram Stoker award winner. That's so. exactly what I figured. So yeah, yeah this is going to be yeah. this is going to be a really good conversation. Yeah, we're going to have a blast. <laughs> All right. So uh, the first quick question is, what was the first movie that scared you? Oh, my God. Uh, that's a great question. Um, and I'm going to I'm trying to keep things simple. But uh, well, my mother God bless her soul. God rest her soul. Took me to see Jaws uh, the, the week of its release yeah. with my siblings. And I would have been uh, seven or seven years old, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that scared the absolute crap out of me. And I lived in Southern California and it really affected, uh, even to this day, it really impacted um my willingness to swim in the ocean beyond kind of the waves. Like right. I, still, I still have that neuroses because of that film. Yeah. Uh, so I would say most definitely was Jaws. Then followed quickly behind that. Um, I don't know who the hell let me see this one, but The Exorcist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jaws is actually one of the movies that uh, like almost every single guest that we have on the show, they always say Jaws is the first movie that scared them. And like it, they're all from different generations of people too. But uh, I saw Jaws really young as well. I think I was maybe two or three when I first saw it. And uh, but I, I loved it. You know what I mean? Like, um, it, it's just that movie is so perfect. I love absolutely everything about it, and and it holds up, which is great. <laughs> yeah, despite you know all the jokes about the robotic shark shark not working and, and yeah, technology. And the special effects, so many movies of that era don't hold up because the special effects become laughable, but yeah. uh, because they opted to keep the shark for so much of the movie kind of off screen and just mm. kind of scaring us with its presence, I think you're right. It holds up magnificently. Yeah. And I think you're also absolutely correct. I don't know whether a lot of people outside of the horror genre stop and say that this jaws is absolutely a horror movie right it's a monster, <laughs> a monster movie yeah um all right what was the most recent movie that got under your skin oh man that's a great question um so movie not series i mean because of covid we've been binging you know so stranger things obviously yep freaking impacted me on so many levels musically the dungeons and dragons vibe i mean that yeah. just spoke to my generation do you play D as well uh, i do i do that's okay so yeah we are best friends <laughs> um so i actually collect old school D. I i have the original like white box from 1975 and all oh, that man. stuff 
So yeah, I did a talk. I did a talk at the Lake Geneva Library once. That's so fun. So I am friends with Luke Gygax and oh, I've been to Gary yeah. Con at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. He invited me out there. So you knew where I was going, man. You knew yeah, where I was going. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so That's I don't great. I don't know if their stranger thing counts, you know, uh as the most recent thing I've watched I've viewed that scared the bejesus out of me. But that I, I found that to be utterly, absolutely unsettling. <clears throat> Uh, who's your favorite horror author? Oh man. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm biased, right? right. <laughs> uh, so even though Ray Bradbury ostensibly only wrote, I would say two and a half books, I will say as horror, uh, dark carnival, his first book, 1947, something wicked this way comes, the last book of his golden period, 1962. And then The October Country, which is ostensibly dark carnival, <clears throat> re-edited, rewritten, uh, redrafted. Um, that's why I say two and a half books. So yeah. <laughs> I would put him as my favorite, but um, followed closely behind uh, by Joe Hill, Stephen King's yeah. son. I love Joe Hill as well. So <laughs> I love Joe I, the guy can't go wrong. And I've, I've had the blessing of, he contributed to an anthology I edited in 2012. Um, we toured together a little bit. Oh, and, that's great. Um, I, I love, I, I really wish Joe Hill would discontinue to do more and more short stories because yeah. like Bradbury, I think he's a master of the form. I, I agree completely. Like I love his strange weather book, the four short novels. Yeah. Like the, um, the book loaded in that one was like one of the most jaw dropping short novels I've ever read in my life. Absolutely. An incredible story. I yeah. agree. Yeah. You and you and I are simpatico, my friend. Yeah. I, I'm definitely beginning to realize that. <laughs> um, what's your favorite horror book? My favorite horror book. Um, I okay, you know, do you want me to exclude Bradbury because I'm his biographer? <laughs> sure, sure. We'll we'll assume you just love everything by him. Yeah, I mean, I would have said the October Country if I could have been honest, but um my favorite horror book, see it's such a tough question. Um again, I'm kind of cheating here, but there's a two volume anthology called American Fantastic Tales edited by the great Peter Straub mm -hmm. that includes everything going back to the beginnings of, uh, of colonial America all the way up to the present, you know, so it goes from Nathaniel Hawthorne and Sherwood Anderson uh, right on up to Harlan Ellison. Um, and I, I think those are, that two volume set is beyond any question, the finest collection of, of horror short fiction ever assembled. Um, so though I would put those two in there, but perhaps that's cheating because it's a two volume set, but you can buy them as one. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so it's not cheating. Then. <laughs> right. Um, do you have a favorite horror video game at all? Whoa, that's a good question. You know, I'm not, I, I, I'm a gamer to a degree, but I don't play horror games, interestingly enough. Yeah, um, that's the same with me, to be quite honest. Like, there's only a handful of horror games that I've ever played. Yeah, I, I did find, um, I can't remember the title of 
the Star Wars game that came with Xbox. It's kind of a recent Star Wars video game, but I found there was a lot of horror in it. Um, and, and I've really enjoyed that game immensely. Uh, new, it might be New Republic. I can't remember the name of it, right. um, but I've really enjoyed that. I, I game a lot, but weirdly, um, my gaming um, proclivities lean weirdly enough to sports games you know yeah. like uh, <laughs> nba 2k yep. i love that man yeah. i mean I, I play that with my littlest and we love it so i don't i don't play horror video games i don't know why right um do you have a favorite uh movie remake like a horror remake whoa man these are intensely awesome questions <laughs> favorite horror remake I'm gonna have to think that one through. Um, let me think about this. Um, you know, I would say, as 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 much as I love canonical classic golden era cinema, um, I. F- my favorite incarnation of Dracula is with Gary Oldman, directed by Francis okay. Coppola. Yeah. I absolutely love that film. I, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's a perfect movie. So I think that's that's the finest adaptation to me. Mm-hmm. No offense to all the other great incarnations, um, but I, I love that movie. And I'm just a huge Gary Oldman fan. Yeah, he's great in that movie too. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's your favorite horror movie theme song? Oh gosh! Of course, the the easy route would be John Carpenter's little, you know, toy Casio synthesizer Halloween. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I actually I think the the most brilliant ever, <clears throat> also decidedly simplistic, is um, I'm pretty sure it's John Williams, and it would be Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, again, I, I think there's a similarity between. Carpenter's Halloween simplicity and uh, Williams's uh, Jaws simplicity. I think, I think writers often think that complicated is better, and that I just, I just don't buy that. I think right. yeah, exactly the simplest, the simplest thing is can be the most direct and most effective, and both of those theme songs are fucking chilling <laughs> yeah well the what i love about both of them is like the jaws theme builds up in intensity and and so does the halloween theme as well it's yeah. simple it repeats a lot but like in halloween it, it builds and builds and builds and crescendos and you have all these different notes going on you've got the deeper notes and the higher oh. notes and then eventually it gets to the point where it just like cuts off and you're right back to just the high pitch like the main theme and it's it's so indicative of the movie itself when the intensity builds and builds and builds michael kills and then he's gone again right like so like when you listen to the music you can also picture what's going on in the movie there's like a a synergy between the two yeah you just really summarized it perfectly jt that (laughs) um what is your fondest halloween memory oh well that that gets that gets pretty easy because I'm a dad of three and yeah. <laughs> uh, I live in the city of Chicago and our neighborhood um, over the years has become almost, I mean, 
disnified in its embracing of of the holiday i mean everybody lights their house up everybody's now trying to outdo each other with lawn That's great. <laughs> um, people from all over chicago uh it's diverse as 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 you can imagine every, people from every neighborhood come to our neighborhood on halloween night to trick-or-treat because it's it's like a weird you know eight by eight block radius of of the celebration of the holiday and so that's awesome that's where i i dream of basically it's fantastic it's my favorite memory is is annual and it's being able to take my three beloved children out to celebrate and dress up and um you know, one year I dressed as Ray Bradbury. That was right. fun. <laughs> so that that would be that would be my favorite memory. As a kid, I grew up in Malibu, California, and right. um, you know, I I used to trick or treat there. And Halloween didn't have the same prevalence in society at that point, but it was still a lot of fun. And yeah. you know, my brother and I, my older brother um, Dave, w- you know, we quickly switched from plastic pumpkins. Uh, holding our candy to pillowcases because we wanted the large hall, you know. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You wanted to go out all night, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you believe in ghosts? I do. Yeah, I do. I wish they were more prevalent and made themselves more uh, apparent to us. But I think there's something uh, about uh, the spiritual state that prohibits them from. Mm-hmm being uh prevalent and present in our daily lives but um i've had i i've well we we lived in a house when i was a kid that was built in the 1800s and when we moved in the sellers said this house is haunted we just want you to know um and we lived there for four years and never once had an experience and neighbors would know we keep seeing a face in one of the windows who is that we're like we're not, we weren't home you know and we never we never once had any encounter um we sold the house and the guy who bought the house called my mom two months later and said we're selling the house we're moving out this house is completely haunted why didn't you tell us oh my god <laughs> um, so i think my large family scared the shit out of the spirit world and right. so they, they didn't appear you know right. I had one experience while I was on the road touring in a very old colonial Virginia. And I stayed in a bed and breakfast, three stories, and the manager wasn't even on site. So I was all alone in this creepy old house. Uh, and the water in the bathroom sink kept turning on all night long. Um, I turn it off, it would go back on. I turn it on, it would go back on you right. know and, and so i i do believe in the spirit world but i don't i think i think they're out of reach mostly to us mm-hmm. and i don't know why yeah i 100 percent. like i uh, i have a lot of just unexplainable stories my mom has a lot of unexplainable stories like there's uh if you ever have the time i believe it's episode three of this podcast i'll, I'll send it to you but it, i interview my mom and she tells her ghost stories of what she experienced and it, it's a pretty it's a pretty great thing she she used to tell us all these stories at like sleepovers when we'd have our friends over and stuff and it used to scare the shit out of us but it, it, it's pretty good 
I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I will listen to episode three. And anytime you're including mom, you're you're uh, you're hitting the soft spot of my heart because my mom right. Right. my mom died when I was 25. So oh, I yeah. I love that you your mom's been a part of your podcast. You're oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, cool. and it's funny because like the first guest that I had on, um, he he was like, well, "I'm honored to be on the same podcast that your mom was on." <laughs> uh, well, I, as, as am I, my friend. As am I, I'm pass um, that on to your mother. I I stand in <laughs> awe that I follow such an illustrious guest. <laughs> um, Jason, Freddie, or Michael? Oh damn! Uh, Michael, Michael. Yeah, yeah. me too. Okay, so we are the exact same person. <laughs> yeah, I find, be, I, I find Michael to be less uh, obvious. You know, he's yeah. more psychological. Yeah. I, I fall in line with, and and this is something Ray Bradbury and I agreed upon immensely. Is I I definitely definitely lean more towards Hitchcockian horror, mm-hmm. uh, which tends to, you know, less is more which yep. goes back to what we were talking about with music and, and horror theme music. Yep. This is more. And I find that oftentimes, particularly in that first Halloween movie, you know, just the glimpses of Michael is, are terrifying. Yeah, exactly. That moment, that moment we see him behind the shrubbery is like one of the scariest freaking things. Right. And it's like, he's so far away and it's so out of focus and you, uh, it, your brain has, like, you're not even sure, is he wearing a mask? What is it like? Is that his face? Like at that point, you don't know what, what he looks like. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I love Freddie and I love Jason. I find Freddie to be a little cartoonish yep. at times. Um, and Jason over just it just becomes uh overt over the top and, and gratuitous at times yeah. but they're all awesome forgive me i don't even know the name of oh leatherface yeah I mean, from Leatherface. texas chainsaw Absolutely yeah terrifying yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and who's your favorite oh universal monster oh god i'm so glad you asked that i love <laughs> and that's such that that's like asking someone what is your favorite Ray Bradbury book, which I right. just did you know, last night? Uh, or what is your favorite Kiss album? Right. You know, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, that is such a fucking brutal question. Um, <laughs> but I got to go. Uh, uh, now, now my brain is seizing because I'm, I'm having a, a battle royale right now between the creature <laughs> of the Black Lagoon versus. Uh, Elsa Lancaster's Bride of uh, Frankenstein. I love her. The yeah. Bride of, I love the Bride of Frankenstein. I think right. she's just perfection. Yeah. Perfection. <laughs> yeah, Wolfman is my favorite. Oh, I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, I love the movie. I love uh, Lon Chaney Jr.'s acting in it. Like, it, it's just great. And like, yeah, that, that story is just great. Like, I, I really feel like it's the Universal Monster movie other than Bride of Frankenstein that really still stands today and you can still watch it and it can be entertaining um whereas other people like when you try to watch the original frankenstein or even dracula with like a modern audience they don't really get it in the same way you know what i mean yeah i get you totally i agree i agree with you yeah Yeah. i I, I love all of them too right like i've got like the frankensteins in here and (laughs) And i'm glad you include that because i think a, a lot of Gen Z horror enthusiasts, I don't know whether that I don't know. I, I I'm not speaking for them, so forgive me, but I don't know whether they have the same level of respect for the Universal Monster films 
uh, that that we do. I, I love those movies. Yeah. They're perfect. Yeah. Um, but you know what's funny though is like I'm only 25 years old. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So yeah. So and, and well, it does appeal to your generation. That's right. cool. And, and yeah, so like I'm definitely like I've been called an old soul since I was born. So, yeah, <laughs> I love yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Those movies are great. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so we're gonna talk about uh, a couple things. But the first thing that we're gonna geek out about is the Kiss album, Music from the Elder, <laughs> which I'm so excited that I found someone else that's as passionate about it as me and my dad are because. We love this album and I don't understand the hate that it gets. I don't understand the hate that the band projects it as it's, it's not a bad album by any stretch of the imagination. And I, I, it, it actually shows them at, honestly, I want to say their peak talent when they definitely um, were trying to do something creative and interesting. And then I, I feel like they just got uh, trapped into like when they were doing things like Animalize and uh, Asylum and things like that. They were just trying to follow other bands at that point. But I feel like the Elders, the last time they tried to do something creative and it didn't work out for them, unfortunately. So I, I, I want to discuss all things music from the Elder with you. So, Oh, my God. I, you know, I've never had this discussion. And, and I bow I bow to you, JT, for, for, <laughs> for coming out of the gates yeah. <laughs> uh, as we talk about Kiss with yeah. music from the Elder. Um, I, would, I would say that I could make a strong case that music from the Elder is probably my favorite kiss album of their entire catalog mm -hmm. and i i agree with you completely that i i am flummoxed uh uh confused why it gets the hate that it does from so many fans um and re and even more disturbing from the band itself because <clears throat> you're 110 percent correct they are at the top of their abilities there are no better ace fraley guitar solos uh, in the canon, and there's a lot of great Ace Fairly guitar solos. <laughs> the, the, two, the guitar solo on Dark Light is absolutely shredding. Yeah, it it's blows, phenomenal. <laughs> it blows away his guitar solos that are often lionized. Um, the guitar solo on Kiss Alive that comes at the end of She, mm -hmm. and the guitar solo uh, on Kiss Alive 2 uh at the end of shock me um the dark light solo blows both of those guitar solos out of the water he yeah. is absolutely melodically shredding on that solo he shreds similarly on the instrumental track escape from the island which, which i is love i love that track <laughs> totally it's so cinematic yeah, a hundred percent. And like him and Eric Carr going back to like they have like a little like uh verse chorus repeat type thing where they're just bouncing back and it's phenomenal. Like those two musicians, like as, as much as everyone says that Ace and Peter were really like buddies, Ace and Eric Carr really bonded musically and they played so well together. And I wish we got more out of that lineup. Oh, I do too. And I don't I don't think enough people talk about how brilliant the drumming is uh eric carr's drumming on the elder i mean it's yeah. absolutely it's remarkable drum work and yeah. i think you know i think it gets overshadowed because of the drum production on creatures on, yeah. <laughs> on the subsequent album creatures of the night which yeah. is that that's the most thunderous heavy metal drum album right 
but it's more complicated on the elder like the oath oh. is a complicated drum track like i'm a drummer because of eric Carr and peter chris but uh like the oath is a complicated drum that nobody really talks about and it's if it was just turned up a little bit it would be as powerful as what happens on creatures of the night yeah, I'm with you. And I think a lot what gets lost in the elder discussion that people don't realize, I mean, this is produced by by the same man who produced Lou Reed, the same man who produced Pink Floyd's The Wall. Yep. Um, Lou Reed writes, I believe, let me think here, three songs, A World Without Heroes, Mr. Blackwell and Dark Light. He has co-writing credit on three songs on the elder. Um, this is, you're right. I mean, this is Kiss. There's people that make fun of the elder aren't respecting the fact that this is a band taking a risk and when an artist takes a chance to do something new uh they should be applauded whether you like it or not they're they're stretching and they're trying something new and the elder is was not kiss trying to be be rush 2112 it was not kiss uh, trying to imitate anybody. It was Kiss trying to grow. Exactly. And, and and they did, as you said. It, I, I think it's just a phenomenal record. And the songwriting, the songwriting is great. Only You by Gene Simmons is a fantastic song. Yeah. And <laughs> The Oath, written by Paul Stanley, is a fantastic song. There's no reason why The Oath, especially like, like, like you're saying, like there are songs on this album that shred, that sound fantastic. Like there's no reason why that band, like that, the song The Oath has been covered by a lot of death metal bands. And I particularly don't like death metal all that much, but <laughs> but at least some people are getting to enjoy The Oath the way that it's supposed to be enjoyed though. It's not the Kiss version, but it's a damn good song and there's no reason why people shouldn't like it. Yeah, you know, I I don't get the hate, as you're saying. I I think if anybody listening to this who is unfamiliar with this, just Google uh, or YouTube uh, Kiss the Oath Fridays. So Friday was the ABC kind of response to Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. And Kiss performed... Um, I think three songs that on that episode live. Yeah, they ripped through the oath with with I think you know an absolutely blistering guitar solo by Ace, who I understand was incoherent as usual that day, and the <laughs> yeah. sound check was a mess. Yeah. And then, as was typical of Ace Frehley, you know the minute the camera lights go on and we're live. He just absolutely rips that guitar solo. Yeah, exactly. And Eric Carr's drumming on that, that version of uh, the oath on Fridays. I mean, it's a, that that's really, I think you could make a strong argument, JT, that that's Kiss's first metal song. You know, a hundred percent, especially of the eighties metal. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think it gets, I think it gets hammered because uh paul stanley goes into the i was made for loving you falsetto <laughs> yeah and yeah. he's singing about swords and sorcery yeah. D shit <laughs> what is this I, I want gene simmons singing about bagging chicks again. exactly but that and that's what i'll never understand is like the band constantly gets pissed on for only writing songs about partying and girls but then the moment they try to do something else they get shit on for that too <laughs> so yeah, you can't I, I, win. I, I think kiss fans 
they're weird. You know that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. A miserable, bitchy bunch of people. Yep. Um, I love that record. I will always love that record. I could go to the mat and say my favorite Kiss song ever is I, the last song on the album. Yeah. It's always, It always lifts me. It always makes me feel empowered. Absolutely. The drumming, again, is remarkable. Uh, and the songwriting is incredible. And I love the vocal trade-off. Yeah, between Paul and Gene. got a vocal trade-off between Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Yeah. Bob Ezra and the producer got that yeah. and did that. And that, that song is fantastic. Oh, Absolutely. And like, I even love just a boy. Like, I really think that's Paul's voice at the absolute best. I, I do too. You know, I mean, like, I think people make fun of this. or like, I am just a boy. You know, I think people like they have trouble accepting it because yeah. they, want, they want Paul Stanley singing Strutter, you know, right, exactly. or Detroit Rock City. But yeah, but uh, they're allowed to do other things, though, right? And right. <laughs> have I mean, to apologize for it. No, they should do other things. I mean, artists who just stick in a rut and only do the same thing, it gets boring. Yeah, which is why yeah. you have things like Sonic Boom and Monster. <laughs> I mean, that first line, who steers the ship through the stormy sea? I mean, yeah. it's fantastic, man. Yeah. It's a- <laughs> Yeah, and honestly, like sometimes, uh, just before I put my eighteen-month-old son to bed, I sing him that song before I put him down. <laughs> <laughs> who who knew that the elder music from the elder would become lullaby music? Exactly, exactly. But that, it's such a soft song, and he is just a boy, and all this stuff. So <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, I love that song too. There's not a bad song on that record. Yeah. Well, so I disagree with you there. There's one. Bad I can't stand mr blackwell wow you know that's an interesting thing that you're saying there because i would rank that as probably my least favorite song on the album yeah Um, i skip that song every time yeah it's well of course i think my understanding of it i mean we know it's co-written by lou reed i think it's very reedian i think a lot of it probably came from lou reed Mm -hmm. um uh, I think it's a slowed down, grungy, um, almost odious uh, uh, God of Thunder. You know, right. it's so slow. Yeah. But I do really love that call and response bass, yeah. echoing bass at the beginning of it. Yeah. Boom, boom. I mean, it's, it's and then it scares the crap out of you if you're listening to someone that doesn't know <laughs> what you're listening to and you have the volume cranked up in the car and then out of nowhere Gene's like I never said it you're like oh my god what the hell is that <laughs> yeah and, and I think the overlaying of Gene's vocals like the doubling of, of his vocals in two different registers he's harmonizing with himself I think is really cool mm-hmm. um but I would agree. That's probably my least favorite song on the album. Yeah. Not a lot of people talk about the song Under the Rose. The last I love that song. That song has an Eric Carr uh, lyric credit yeah. on it, and it's fantastic. That uh, The chorus to that song is beautiful and powerful, and it, it's great. <laughs> like yeah. Great and, ringing and, in like, the choir. Like, it's fantastic. Oh, loneliness will haunt you. I mean, oh, my God. It's yeah. And then... You know, there's this long-standing controversy in Kiss World of did Ace Frehley play that guitar solo? It's, it's, it, 
it sounds melodically like a Paul Stanley guitar solo. Yeah. People have often argued, is that an A solo? And if memory serves correct, in the last, um, God, we are nerding out here, my man. <laughs> uh, in the last animated video that Ace released in the last few years through his record label uh, for his solo albums, I think it's Mission to Mars. He's, he's released a couple of these sort of cartoon music videos I think it's Mission to Mars where he says in that video, I played the solo on Under the Rose. And okay. so kind of putting to rest the argument to my ears, and Ace is my favorite member of Kiss. Yeah. I want that guitar solo to be Ace. <laughs> it's I, so good. <laughs> I still don't fully believe personally that, that, that it's Ace. I actually, right. if I were to put money down in Vegas, I would say that it's Paul Stanley. But yeah. Yeah. Ace is now claiming credit for it. And that song is is remarkable. Yeah. Um, and then just talking about a lyric in that song, that's kind of indicative of uh, of the album in general. The line, this is, uh, the more you change, the more you stay the same. It's like, well, they tried to change, and then they ended up having to go back to what they're used to, right? Because people just won't accept it. So like wow. as many, as often as they try to keep changing and try to progress, you, you're kind of stuck into being the same old kiss that everybody wants you to be, right? Wow, great uh, critical literary analysis there. And <laughs> I, never, I never connected that, but you're absolutely right. You know, they go back to being a hard rock band with their next album, yeah. though they grew with that next album, of oh, course. Oh, for sure, for sure. And like, there's, there's kind of uh, like pieces of the elders still remnant in um, on their uh, the album Killers that came after that um, with Nowhere yeah. to Run, which I love. I love that. That song should have been a hit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think all four of those songs are fantastic. You know, I, I don't like Partners in Crime, but I love I'm a Legend Tonight and I love Nowhere to Run so much. <laughs> yeah, Nowhere to Run is, is probably my favorite. And yeah. um, I, I actually would argue that I think Paul Stanley, who's a great vocalist, I mean, uh, of the era of, of other great vocalists from Getty Lee to David Lee Roth to Freddie Mercury, who in my, my estimation is probably the greatest rock vocalist of that era. Right. Uh, but I think that uh, those songs on Killers you're talking about, that's Paul Stanley at his, at his, at his peak vocally yeah. on those tracks. He's just absolutely nailing it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what a great nerd discussion, man. I've never, right. I've never gone this deep. <laughs> um, the story of the elder, though, like the, the actual story that they're trying to tell gets kind of lost and muddled. Um, obviously, yeah. you, you and I know that it was supposed to be like a movie and a comic book and all that other stuff. Do you think that that would have been successful if they did it like three yeah. years prior? Oh, three years prior? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Obviously, it wouldn't have been the same album because you wouldn't have Eric Carr, so it would be different. But, um, but yeah, I I agree that like if they released something like The Elder around 1978, 1979, then it probably would have succeeded in a way that it didn't by '81 because they weren't even touring in U.S. at that point, right? Like they did one show at the Palladium, or sorry, two shows at the Palladium in 1980. And then they had to go to Europe and, and Australia and all those other places because they just couldn't sell out anywhere in the States. Yeah, what a shame. I mean, I remember reading 
in the Chicago Tribune, Kiss's plans for a tour behind music from the elder. And I was so excited and then it never came to pass. But I think your point is absolutely correct. Had Kiss released music from the elder as a follow-up to destroyer, Bob Ezrin produced albums back to back. It would have been a platinum album. When you see Gene and Paul bagging on it, it's strictly from the fact that, that it lost because yeah, <laughs> so if it won, they wouldn't have bagged it. <laughs> but so did creatures of the night, which exactly. they loved, you know, and it, yeah, that, exactly. Uh, it, that tour was a miserable failure. Yeah. Um, Kiss had just peaked and there was whatever they had released at that point was going to be a tough turning around of the tractor trailer, whatever yeah. they turned, whatever they did. And, but I do agree with you that if, the Elder came out in 1977, it would have gone double platinum. Yeah, absolutely. And the band would have been completely different, right? Like you wouldn't have things post Love Gun at that point. Like yeah. they, they probably would have done more creative artsy stuff. Yeah, which I think is a really exciting multiverse uh, you know, <laughs> uh, possibility. If we're, if we're going to talk about the Kiss multiverse. Yeah. <laughs> which I, I guarantee you, this is the only podcast that's ever talked about that. <laughs> You're not going to find this on three sides of the coin. No, exactly, exactly. No, and, and I correspond with those guys because you know what? People bag on those dudes too, and they hate them too. And they're yeah. But those guys are all they're all they're all nice to me. Like I got an email from one of them today. Those guys are nice. They're actually nice people, right? And they they love the band and they just want to share their passion. Yeah. People bag on that podcast because they bag on everything. They're exactly. gonna. Any KISS fan who listens to this, and I hope they do, JT, they're going to bag on us. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. <laughs> Let them. And, and, and that's the thing, too, is like as KISS fans, like I'm assuming it would have been different in the 70s and 80s, like when they were at least relatively popular. But I was, as I mentioned, I'm 25 now. So I was listening to KISS when I was nine and 10 and upwards. And that was only 10, 15 years ago. Right. So I had to deal with a lot of crap from people that are looking at the band from today's perspective and not taking in, into account how much they actually changed the world back in the seventies and how every rock show since is, has DNA from a kiss show. Right. Like it, and you have to hear all these things about, Oh yeah. Kiss makes anything but music. And then I show them things like the elder and I'm like, what is this then? <laughs> right. I show them parasite. I'm like, what is this? If not a great rock song. So. <laughs> oh man. I mean, that riff, that riff is as iconic as Iron Man by Black Sabbath. I mean, exactly. But nobody ever. And, and this is the thing, like I, I remember listening to an interview that you gave actually um, on a, I forget what podcast it was, but you were talking about, um, uh, about some stuff to do with kiss and uh, I heard that same apologetic tone in your voice where you kind of have to apologize for being a KISS fan because the way that they, everybody that hates KISS really hates KISS and they look down on them like they're the worst thing to happen to music. And I just don't get it because like you can stack it against anything from uh, ACDC, Van Halen, Rush, anybody, and you're going to find songs that you like from it. But people are so willing to hate the band and hate you for liking the band. No, even Kiss themselves have had moments of that sort of apologetic tone. Yeah. It's interesting you bring this up. So the the booklet that came in the original pressing of Kiss Alive 2, the evolution of Kiss, which showed Kiss from 1973 to the release of Alive 2 in 1977, mm-hmm. and shows their 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 visual evolution and their different costumes and so on. 
as I recall, the beginning of the narrative in that booklet says you either love them or you hate them. Yeah. So the band themselves, even addressing the fact that there's haters. Yeah, Uh, exactly. And then of course, and I'm jumping all over the map and only the nerds and you are going to get this, but on the cover of the 1980 album that (laughs) was released just before music from the elder, uh, Kiss Unmasked. Uh, I still think they stink. <laughs> yeah, the last yeah. panel of the comic strip that is the yeah. cover has this journalist chasing them around, trying to get a picture of them without their makeup. At the end, he gets the picture. Um, you know, surprise, surprise. I will, you know, they, they yeah. take the makeup off, and underneath the makeup, underneath the mask, are, yeah. are the are the are the is the makeup. Yeah. And the last line is what you said. I still say they. St- they stink. Yeah. So here you have the band themselves and their management team and their art director, Dennis Woolock, I think his yeah. name, embracing the same sort of apologetic tone. And I think we've all reached a point as KISS fans in our fandom at some point and, and oftentimes many times where we're done fucking apologizing for yeah. it. I'm just tired of people saying, "Kiss sucks," you know. Yeah, exactly. It's they're wrong. Like ultimately, they're just flat out wrong, and you can't convince them otherwise. But they're just wrong. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and and, and w- the last thing that that I'll say about Kiss before we move on a little bit. Um, but the last thing here is, um, unless you've been there, standing in the audience. And when the lights go down and you just see um, the spotlights shining on that huge kiss logo, like on the tarp and you hear that low growl and it's just rumbling in your stomach and you're like, just waiting for the curtain to draw for the, for the guy to shout, you wanted the best, you got the best. You don't understand anything about the band until you've physically been there and felt that excitement. I'm totally with you, man. That that low hum, that bass tone. And- it's fantastic. Like I first saw them when I was uh, seven years old and um, that was when they were on the tour with Aerosmith and yeah. they opened up for Aerosmith. And um, wow. yeah, yeah, like when I was a kid, cause like the first album that I got was Alive 2. Um, and my dad kind of did that because when he was a kid, the first album that he got was Kiss Alive 2. So he got it on vinyl when he was a kid and I got it on CD when I was a kid, but it honestly started like a lifelong obsession with me. And that's, that's always been with me and they are my favorite band and they will always be my favorite oh, band. Man, so. That's so cool. And that's such a tribute to your dad that, you know, parents always want to share their loves and affections and yeah. interests with children. And it's not always the case that a lot of kids want to discover their own things and be yeah. rebellious and, and not necessarily like what their parents do. Exactly. And and the thing with this, too, is like I actually like because everyone's like, well, not everyone, but I have some family members that are like, oh, your dad brainwashed you. And I'm like, no, my dad introduced me to this really cool thing that I ended up finding things that I love about it. Like my dad starts and stops pretty much with um, like the first album and then stops with the elder. He can kind of accept Creatures of the Night, but everything after that, like he's not into the non makeup stuff at all. Whereas I actually really like that era of the band. Right. So it's like there, he introduced me to it. Yes. But it's not like he sat me down and was like, you have to watch this kiss stuff. Like I wanted to do it because I cared about it. Right. So. Yeah. Um, no, you develop your own tastes, you know, yeah. and get introduced it to you, but you, you have your own uh, proclivities and leanings. And yeah, exactly. Aspects to the non makeup era. I think lick it up is a great record. Yeah. Um, 
I, I have great admiration for Bruce Kulick as a guitar player and as yeah. a human being. I think he's a, um, I do agree with what you said earlier on in our conversation that they were, they were starting to follow trends during the non-makeup era, as opposed to leading them and doing their own thing. Yeah. Um, you know, in the seventies, they're dropping their own blood into vats <laughs> of making comic books Yeah, printed in their own blood and they're wearing costumes and makeup and people are like, what is this shit? You know, and in the eighties, you know, they're writing with Desmond Child and sounding more and more like Bon Jovi. And I think right. they were becoming more followers, which I think when Kiss are, are at the forefront and really doing what their what their ethos uh, represents, like this screw you attitude, I'm going to be who I want to be and I'm going to do yep. whatever I want. When they do that, they're at their best. Exactly. And that's what I identify with the most is like, I, like we were talking about earlier is I'm someone that has always, um, I, I want to say beaded, but I don't think that's the correct word, but I've always marched to the tune of my own drum. Right. Yeah. Like, um, so like when they're singing anthemic choruses about be yourself, be who you want to be, like fuck the people that don't agree or don't understand. Like I've had to face a lot of that in my life. Right. Like whether it's being a kiss fan or just being like a weird creative writer kid, like I've always had this, like perception of myself and people have had this perception of me that I'm just a weird person right and then so when you have this anthemic chorus like like you mentioned like the song I and it's just like well you know like I just need two feet of my own and and the balls to stand up alone like that's me right and you just gotta fucking do whatever whatever you need to do to to get through the day and just be yourself and that's the best part of Kiss I mean rebellion can be no better articulated than flaming youth will set the world on fire. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so then just uh really quickly, I'm just gonna ask you a couple of questions about um Ray Bradbury stuff, um, just before we wrap up here. Um, as much as I've been enjoying this conversation, like I, this has been awesome. Um so as I mentioned to you earlier, like I, uh, I started reading Bradbury starting with Zen and the Art of Writing, which is not really the introductory book that most people start with Bradbury. Um, I actually didn't even start reading Fahrenheit 451 until like two years ago. And uh, I'm glad that I didn't read it in high school because uh, high school has a tendency to kind of ruin uh well, it definitely ruined my love of reading at that point. Uh, so I, I didn't want to read anything. So and other students had Fahrenheit 451 assigned to them, but I never did. We had Brave New World instead, which is a good book. But I still have that. Like, it has that air of, oh, I had to read this for school. So it makes me kind of pissy. Um, but uh, yeah, but I'm so glad that I didn't read Fahrenheit 451 because I would have hated it. And 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 I don't want to hate that book. That book's fantastic. Right. Um when did you first uh, like read Ray Bradbury? Well, you know, I'll just preface this by saying I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think when a book gets assigned in, in middle school and high school, uh, it often be, feels like a chore and it turns teachers need to be very delicate in how they introduce literature because you don't want it to feel like a chore. You want it to feel like a celebration and introduce young readers um, lead them to the water to drink. Don't force them. And, yeah. and um, so I didn't read Fahrenheit and I'm like you, I'm glad it wasn't assigned to me because I probably would have hated it too. You know, yeah. um, it, it, I, I discovered Bradbury, as I said, in 
uh, the introduction to my biography of him, the Bradbury Chronicles. Weirdly enough, my dad, like your dad and Kiss, um, my dad was a huge Bradbury fan in the uh, 50s and 60s. And he read Ray Bradbury to my mom aloud when she was pregnant with me. That's awesome. <laughs> so I, I encountered the illustrated man when I was nine months in utero. Um, so right. that's, <laughs> and Ray loved that. He's like, okay, you should be my biographer. Right. <laughs> it sounds like a Bradbury story. Yeah. Uh, I did. I, then I discovered the very exact paperback copy my dad had read to my mom when I was 11. Right. Uh, and I read it. Uh, down in the basement of our house in a sleeping bag at night. Uh, and I read the story, the long rain uh, about the, the astronauts on Venus um, and it's a rain planet and it's just drenching constantly. And they're seeking a sun dome uh, for warmth and to get away from the, the constant downpour. Um, and I fell in love with it on multiple levels, the imagination, um, the language spoke to me, which is pretty interesting considering a, simultaneously I was reading things like Encyclopedia Brown and the Hardy Boys. Right. right. <laughs> the, of the language yeah. absolutely connected to me. And so at 11, I didn't just fall in love with the books of Ray Bradbury. I fell in love with Ray Bradbury himself. And, yeah. uh, and, it, and decades later, it, it, it's, it's, more intense than ever before. And in those ensuing decades, I became his biographer. I've done four books and a graphic novel related to his life and works. I worked very intimately and closely with him for 12 years. And I love him now, today, uh, more than I ever have, ever. Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny too that that you're saying that uh, that you fell in love with him because I have a very similar experience as I was telling you about. Like I, the moment that I realized that him and I shared a connection and that he was able to talk to me through time in a way and give me advice despite not actually talking to me, and then like I went back and watched every single interview, watched every single lecture he ever gave on writing, and watched every documentary I could on him because I just even from when I was a young kid once I fell in love with something it was more so, like I I haven't read everything that he's written I haven't read anything that or everything that uh, Joe Hill or Stephen King's written either but I still love those people as people um, yeah. because it, it's, it's so accessible to learn about who they are and I almost find that to be more interesting than the actual stories themselves um and I always get inspiration from listening to people like Joe Hill and people like Ray Bradbury talking with passion just about their work. And especially Ray Bradbury, when he's talking about what he wants out of other writers, he's like, if you're not mad about it, don't do it. And like, I agree with him. So he's preaching to the choir, right? So um, I, I wish so much that I was able to meet him and, and encounter him because I, I feel like as this discussion today, I feel like it would have been a, a, a very similar conversation with him too well i I mean i i can tell you right now emphatically and positively that he wishes he was able to meet you too jt and to hug you and to thank you uh first for um saying those words and that his his creativity spoke to your heart yeah um, and continues to speak to your heart if he were here right now i mean i 
I spend so much time with him that I, I, I can often respond for him. Right. He, knew that, he knew that. He would often right. say, well, you respond for me, Sam. You'll say it exactly the way I want to say it. <laughs> right. So he would say thank you uh, profoundly. Right. Um, and he would tell you that he loves you. To no. what he'd say. I love That's you. awesome. That's awesome. Wow, that's that's really nice. Thank you, thank you for that. Well, he, it's the absolute truth. He loves you. Wow, um, wow, that you kind of left me gobsmacked uh, there. <laughs> oh, wow, that, that's not how I expected that to go. That's that's really nice, though. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I mean, sincerely, he he, I, 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 he's in my heart. He lives in my head. He's yeah. telling me right now, you want to talk about ghosts. Yeah. It's not the ghost of Ray Bradbury, but Ray Bradbury does live within me. Right. Spirit. And he's saying right now, JT, I love you. I love wow. you. That's awesome. Um, one question uh, that I do have that I'm curious about your uh, perspective of things now, given just the general, um, I don't, I don't want to say a disaster that the world's in right the second, because I know that Ray was always very optimistic about, uh, about the world and about the future of humanity. Um, but given everything that's going on, um, Ray was always optimistic about space travel, uh, connecting humanity. Uh, do you think that there's still, um, any way that we can achieve that or like, is that obtainable at all? Or do you think that we're now too far gone past the point of connecting all of us? Oh, wow. Wow. What a deep philosophical question. So I'll, I'll answer for him. Like I said, he resides in my brain. Um, and he would say it's, it's never too late if the desire is there. Um, and so it's not too late. Uh, but we, he was very dismayed at the end of his life. Um, that we had abandoned the moon. Yep. Um, we haven't been back since 1972. Um, we, we, at the end of his life, we weren't planning any sort of uh, manned missions to, to Mars. Um, yeah. I think he would be encouraged by the um, entrepreneurial uh, endeavors of of private entities going mm-hmm. into space because he he felt the government had kind of abandoned it yeah. um you know regardless of how you feel about billionaires sending their cars into auto space <laughs> or sending william shatner right exactly you know, sort of ridiculous and cartoonish the whole thing <laughs> is he would say um <clears throat> If it gets us there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he would say it's not too late, but the clock is ticking. Yeah, I'm and that's bit, how I feel too. I'm a bit more pessimistic. I don't think it's too late, but... Uh, it's unlikely. And yeah. like the what what prompted the question was, um, I saw uh, Elon Musk tweeted today. He said that in our lifetime, we'll be on the moon. Or sorry, on, on Mars. And maybe, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe he's right. <laughs> So, yeah, no, I think he, he, he could well be right. I mean, my wife and I talk about this all the time. It's like, you know, if you look at from 1903, we have Wilbur and Orville Wright flying for a matter of seconds. And um, 66 years later, we're landing uh, in the Sea of Tranquility. Exactly. So, it, it can happen, right? It can, <laughs> it can happen. But what brought that about also were two world wars and the advent of technology because of, of war culture. Um, 
and that's kind of a scary prospect, is that is that what it's going to take to get us to Mars is the impending destruction of our planet exactly uh, via climate disaster or civil war here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, or any a number of other of other problems are over dependency on fossil fuels and when they eventually dry up and vanish yeah um, is it going to be too late uh, if we make that sort of wartime decision to to increase our our tech acumen and get the hell off this rock uh, yeah. is it going to be too late I don't know Ray would say that's why you got to get working today exactly yeah. Well, that's, that's a great way to wrap up the conversation, Sam. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I greatly appreciate that. And you're honestly more than welcome to come back whenever you want to. Like, there's so much stuff that we didn't even get into, but uh, this has been honestly a, a fantastic conversation. No, I've loved it so much, JT. And you, you're, you know, you're my Bradbury brother now, man. <laughs> we're, we're, as Ray would say, we're connected at the hip. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's his, awesome. His DNA flows through both of us. Yeah. Via his creativity. So thank you for uh, for inviting me on your awesome show. And and, uh, I hope to speak again. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day. You do the same. All right. Bye.